I believe in hope. I believe in belief. Hi, welcome to Coach Beard's Book Club. I'm Michaela, Coach Beard's assistant, and together with Andrea, Bex, and Marita, we'll be diving into the books mentioned or seen in the Apple TV series Ted Lasso. If you love Ted Lasso as much as Keely loves unicorns, then join this group of four women, handpicked by Beard himself, and let's go! Greyhounds, welcome back. How is everyone doing? This week we have an exciting thing happening. We have a guest and our guest is Chrisanne Morgan. Thanks for joining us, Chrisanne. Let's take a second, Greyhounds, to introduce Chrisanne Morgan, our guest for this show. And I think the best way to do that is to listen to Hannah Waddingham herself discuss it with Tom Power from the CBC, followed by a short clip of Chrisanne explaining why Ted Lasso has been so important to her. The show means a lot to you guys, but the show has meant a lot to people during this pandemic and during some of the darker moments of their lives. And I have, a, I have an example of something I was going to read to you, but I thought I might ask you, can you remember a particular moment where a fan or someone who was sort of helped by the show told you something that was particularly meaningful to you? Uh, yes. And it's quite a, a weighty one. And I don't mean to, to it, I hope people see it as a, a thing of joy. A very good friend of mine, Todd Stashwick, who uh, was very instrumental in me being cast. He um was asked by Brendan Hunt our beloved coach beard and writer he was asked if he knew anyone that could play this part and Todd said well who what what has she got to be like and and Brendan said and he went well that's Hannah Waddingham and that's how I got in the room in the first place cut to Todd's great friend Chris Ann who is fighting her battle with cancer in LA and he said to me is there any way you could send her a message because your show through lockdown when she's having her cancer treatment has changed her life and given her hope and a light at the end of the tunnel. And so myself and several other of my castmates sent her video messages during the pandemic to help her through her treatment. And still today, I had a ticket for her for our premiere that we had uh, back at kind of uh, during August. Um, which she wasn't able to come to because she was having a, a bad day that day. But she and I spoke video call when she was in hospital. And she said that you guys don't know what, what you have done for me. And to receive messages on top of that from you all saying, come on. I mean, Brett Goldstein sent her a message, effing and blinding as Roy Kent going, you're an effing rock star. You are an effing superstar, Chris Ann. You're going to pull through this and you're going to be just fine. And she went, you will, you cannot know how much that has helped me. And to hear something like that is so humbling. My brain can't really compute it. And that's why I said, I don't mean to bring people down or no. make them press or whatever, no. but that, but that was easily the, the biggest thing that has happened to me thus far on this journey to feel like you have, created some some sense of joy or coping mechanism for somebody just by doing your your show and doing your job it's a massive massive privilege is that chris ann yeah it's roy kent here 
Apparently, word on the street is, you're a fucking hero. You're a legend of some kind. From what I hear, you're one of the best people that people know. You're rolled up at the moment in some hospital, Cedars or something. You've got all sorts going on, apparently. You're a tough bastard, and I respect that. Chrisanne, this is Jeremy Swift. I play Higgins, and I just wanted to send you a megaton um, powerball of healing love. Uh, hello, Chrisanne. Hi. I just wanted to come say hello. Um, give you whatever encouragement I can, because I know it's probably fun being the party queen of Cedar sinai but uh, I hope you're able to get out of there before too long, because here's the thing. We're about to shoot season two of Ted Lasso, and when I get back from doing that, I expect to talk to you all about it. So it's very sweet and very encouraging. And I had been kind of wearing the show like a warm blanket. I was going through some pretty rough times. First, it was the pandemic. Uh, and I didn't know that I was sick, even though I was feeling wrong. And then when I first got diagnosed and I started to go through treatment, I just, I wore that show like my whoopee, And it really carried me through some dark moments. It just felt so comforting and felt so nice. And then I had them all supporting me on top of it. So it just kind of felt like, and I watched those videos of them encouraging me so much um, just because it just, I don't know, it, it felt so warm and extraordinary and lovely. Now that we've introduced Chrisanne, if you could take a minute to pop over to chrisannemorgan.com. Chrisanne wrote an open love letter to Beard after hours, the episode, and honestly, it was wonderful. Please go have a read of it. Let us know what you think as well. So good to see you, Chrisanne. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And we have our usual players in the game. We have Bex. Hello, everyone. We have Andrea. Hi, all. And we have Marita. Hey, everybody. And of course, you. And me, yeah. Me. My name's Michaela. <laughs> Forgot about me. <laughs> Never forget about you. Okay, Bex, so you have a summary of Bird by Bird for us. Yes, this month we are discussing Bird by Bird, and it is Anne Lamott's guide to using the power of routine, being yourself, rolling with the punches, and many other principles to become a better writer. It's basically a how-to guide with some stories in it. It's not a novel or even a conventional memoir that tells an overarching story about someone's life. It doesn't really have a plot per se, but it is divided into five sections and in each section she addresses something differently. So part one is called writing and it's on how to write. Uh, it's kind of a guide with tips and examples and sympathy <laughs> from the author about how hard it is to just sit down and write sometimes. Part two is the writing frame of mind and that delves into how to think like a writer, how to think in order to write. Uh, part three, help along the way. I love this part. I think that that title alone already connects to Ted Lasso, but you know how to get help and support with your writing at different steps in the process. Part four is on publication and other reasons to write. This is ideas on getting your work published, but also reasons why writing beyond fame and money can also be just as valuable. And in part five, the last class, she writes about, well, she writes a, an inspiring and somewhat snarky uh, section with some final advice just to send you out into the world with. In terms of how Bird by Bird connects to Ted Lasso, well, we never actually see the book in the show. We do hear it referenced a couple of times. 
The first reference is in season one, episode two, Biscuits. And about 27 minutes in or so, Beard says he hates losing and Ted responds, bird by bird, coach. We don't hear it again until season two at the end of episode eight, Man City, and the beginning of episode nine, Beard After Hours, when Ted also brings up this bird by bird concept again, reminding Beard of their approach to winning, to getting to the finish line. And Beard flips in the bird and Ted says, not that kind of bird coach. <laughs> Love it. Although you do also, kind of get the impression that Anne Lamott would approve of that kind of bird um, based on her writing. Use. Yeah, I think she absolutely. Yeah, I got that vibe. I'm going to just jump in quickly and say that I am not at a motocross rally. My pug is sleeping next to me and does like to draw attention to herself when she's doing so. So the noise you can hear is a dog, I promise. I think Anne Lamont would approve of that too. I think so, yeah. yeah In I fact, think I would approve I think like she'd, she'd approve of all sorts of brilliant sort of quirky behavior. She seems yeah. like she would just absolutely roll with and appreciate that. So. Yeah, that's good I feel better now. So Marita, you're starting us off with Bird by Bird. I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts about it. Yeah, so when I was reading through early on in the book, one of the things I noticed is her talking about really getting to know your characters, writing you know, a lot more about them than you plan on using in your writing even. Uh, and in doing so, you really get to know the characters and sort of fully conceptualize them as three-dimensional people. And in that process, you know, you start to learn both what they would and wouldn't do in ways that maybe aren't always convenient as a writer because they don't necessarily serve the plot, but they serve you better in the overall piece because you'll have more consistency with how those characters behave. And so what I did is, you know, for Ted Lasso going through episode by episode for various things, there's not a lot of scripts out there. There's transcripts, but not a lot of scripts. And so I found an early, early, like February 2019 script and was comparing that to what actually ended up in the episode to get a good idea of how things changed and you know what was actually there in the bones and crucial to everything. Um, and then how that ended up being developed when they actually made the show. And there was a big caveat there because you don't really know how much was improv on set, how much got cut out in editing. Uh, but then earlier um, today, actually, Michaela pointed out that what I was reading as a script was different than what she had. And so she had a November 2019 shooting script, which is actually this really great intermediate document, um, although it's a little rushed now, right? Because you can see what changed between then and in the intention of the shooting script versus what's in the show. Yeah, so, I'm going to um, need that other one off you so I can sit with the both of them because I, um, I, I was fascinated. I didn't even know there was two out there. I found hard enough to find one uh, yeah and there's not a lot of episodes I found that for so it was I thought really cool and interesting and there are so many differences and so many subtle changes that I'm not gonna I mean I could talk about this for hours because I'm that flavor of nerd but I'm gonna hit a couple of the major points and you know of course things change for all sorts of reasons right some of it is just cutting for time cutting for flow and things like that so in the post-production but there are some some notable changes and something that was really interesting there was a, a podcast episode of third and Fairfax which is from the Writers Guild of America and it had Brett Goldstein and and um, uh, Brendan Hunt on it. Did y'all happen to get a chance to listen to that? No. Well, it's fun, and you should. Um, but they're talking about the writing process, and they're in particular talking about season two and how the whole process of the writer's room worked. They spent a great deal of time talking about it. So I 
I think you probably would all enjoy it. Uh, and they talk about, you know, coming in and Jason has ideas that are set in stone. These things have to happen. But then from there, they talk about all sorts of things they can kind of build around there, how they can move things around, what incidents have to happen, but how they get moved and spaced out through the episodes. Um, and so I think it really gives us an indication when we look at, especially things that show up very consistently through the scripts and into the show, what was absolutely crucial and then what they felt they could change and play around with, what might be better for character development if it got moved to later. So interestingly, in that very first shooting script, it's not Richmond, it's Greenwich. I just thought that was funny, um, especially because they're the Greyhounds, it's alliterative with Greenwich and it sounds better. That's not obviously a big character thing and I'm sure that was probably changed for practical reasons. But when we get into the very original script, after the character is introduced for the first time, it just has a parenthetical which describes sort of a, a quick who they are. Are. And the first thing we get for Rebecca Welton is that she's in her 40s, resilient, and hides her blue-collar roots. And I saw that and I was like, what? <laughs> no, that's not her. She's not blue-collar at all. She's not even a little bit blue-collar. Only when she wears a jacket with a blue-collar. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And I thought that was so interesting because what we have of Rebecca is this wonderful, amazing character, but it is so distinctly different and things that have happened since. So we get to the shooting script, the description of her is just 40s and intimidating. And I think that is spot on, right? Like, that's perfect. Right? Me. The, the, the Rebecca we know now is so not blue collar and that informs her character actually a lot moving forward. Like, you know, in season two, when we have Nate who can't get the reservation at Taste of Athens, someone from a blue collar background is, is going to comprehend that, right? They're going to know what that looks like. And if they suggest they're going to buy the restaurant, it's not going to be to solve a problem. It's going to be to be like, fuck you, I own it now, give him a table, right? It's just such a different character. Um, but at the same times, we have Higgins, and Higgins is spot on. They call him an old, in the first script, an old 45, middle management, middle everything. And yeah, I mean, Higgins is more than that, but as a first pass, that's what we see. There is some more subtle changes, right? Uh, something I thought was interesting is the college team that Ted came from in both scripts was originally Pittsburgh State, which I thought should be in Pennsylvania as... Pittsburgh is, but it's actually another small college in Kansas. And the, the only reason I can think of that they wouldn't have stuck with Pittsburgh State is Pittsburgh State still has a football team and it's actually pretty good. Wichita State does not. I thought oh. we were just going to say that the Brits wouldn't wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the, whether Pittsburgh was in Pittsburgh or not. So they just kept it easy for us. But yeah, that makes right. no sense. I feel like we would have been the same way here. If you just said Pittsburgh, uh, College. Yeah, I would have assumed. Yeah. So we get onto the actual plane and there's, there's several changes all the way through, but in the original script, when they're talking about whether or not this is a good idea, it actually has Beard checking in with Ted and he's like, his line is how you feeling coach going to be quite a challenge it, instead right we get what ted actually says it's ted asking beard are we nuts for doing this and in the actual show we just get yeah yeah this is nuts right but in the script the shooting script beard says coach i owe you a lot and you know i'd follow you anywhere but this is going to be a challenge and i like how it ended up so much better i think it's so much truer than beard both he's not asking ted in the first place as well i i don't I don't think Beard really checks in with Ted. I think he just sort of has an intuitive sense of him. I think that's what we see from him. This is like a Han shooting first, right? Beard can't ask, right? Han I, shoots. I think that's right. I, I think that's right. And, and then they also show us later and through the show, instead of just telling us that Beard is been through some shit right and also how dedicated he is to Ted and I just think it works so much better when we get that little bit of a slower burn instead of you know that straight up exposition of how their interaction is now I know Beard is uh 
a favorite of Chris Ann's, <laughs> maybe not her favorite favorite. What do you think about that, that difference, that sort of change in, in beard from the one draft to the next? I really think it's just like Anne writes about letting the Polaroid develop or listening to your broccoli as she quotes in the book. If you get quiet enough and you listen to your bro- broccoli, it'll tell you how to eat it. And I feel like they just gave Beard the room to flourish and grow because in the end, I think that moment between Ted and Beard is so much more meaningful because you see so much communicated just in their countenances and their faces. I love that they gave it the room to let the characters come together and inform them because it seems like they really were paying attention and allowing the characters to come to life instead of forcing the exposition on them that would ultimately feel so contrived. I was just going to say, it's a, I think it was a a podcast I listen to, which I don't know is the same one as you were talking about, Marita, because I just listen to things and forget the names of them. But it was about the writing process. And um, and I think Bill had said that like a lot of the writers had turned up and were ready to go with plot and story. And he was like, no, no plot, no story, no nothing for like weeks. And even halfway through the process of writing the characters, people would start to go, oh, this would plot. And he'd be like, no, no plot. So it's it's really, really kind of strict on the whole character first aspect, which I like. I love that Anne talks about too, how dialogue can really show so much more than plot can anyway. And they did that so beautifully with the show. Yeah, totally. I was was just going to throw in, um, as you guys know, on the book club here, I have been obsessed with listening to memoirs written by the authors. And I've been reading a lot, I read several different um, actors and the way that they talked about, you know, like the way that they would get into their characters and like how, like, even if they weren't given a lot of backstory, but just from what they've gotten from the script, when they're, you know, when they're trying out for these parts and how they create a backstory in order to make it feel believable was really interesting to kind of read that actor perspective and then kind of reading the writer perspective in this book, because it's that same, like, yeah, like you need to know yeah, you need to know what your character likes to have for breakfast, even though you're never going to have a scene where they're eating their breakfast. That every day they have their raisin bran or, what, you know, whatever thing, you know, or that they eat a ton of chocolate or something, just whatever, like whatever little quirks that they build that in their head, even when they're doing their tryout sometimes to be like, to build that a little more, more of the character. And so it's just interesting that like the actors are doing it, the writers are thinking it, you know what I mean? Like how it all comes together. I just think that's fascinating. And isn't it cool too, and I'm going to bring this back to the whole lasso universe talking about mental health issues and um, talks about having to have self-compassion in order to bring that compassion to your characters. And I really think they did a great job of that. I mean, you can feel it. You can feel how I never hated Rebecca for a minute. I didn't even, I don't even really hate Rupert or Nate. You know what I mean? Even though I even hate Nate. Don't at me. But you feel the compassion because they actually have compassion for him. You know, somebody understands Rupert on a deep level. um, And they brought that to us so that we could too. The next thing that I I picked, and it's in both scripts, it's in the original and the shooting script, is they have on the the car ride from the airport to the training facility, they have Beard quizzing Ted on the various Premier League clubs. That is cut entirely from the episode. And I'm happy that they did because that quizzing on the various teams and what they're like Right. That was from the original, like, you know, Premier League ads that NBC Sports did. And I think kind of getting rid of that aspect of it allows us to have Ted as more of a three dimensional character. I think, uh, 
it was a skit for NBC Sports, right? Even though it was kind of a long skit and it was a repeated one, is a very one-dimensional character in a one-dimensional relationship. And so I'm not really sad that they cleaved that out at all. They also have in that car ride description uh, in both scripts of... Ted talking to Ollie, who was originally named Sanji, right, about uh, cooking chili. And in the shooting script, he he's asking Ollie about doing a nice chili masala because they both have cumin in them, right? And that gets cut out, which is great because that gives us the opportunity later when, when Ted's in the restaurant with Krim, right? Then he has never had Indian food. And so he's going all in on this spectacularly gut-wrenching spice experience, fully knowing he has no idea what he's in for. And there's something very... I don't know, pure hearted about that. I don't know what this is, but I'm just going to eat it and enjoy it and make it clear how much I appreciate it. So that, so that being it's more authentic out. too, right? Yeah. And when I was in grad school, we had these wonderful collaborators in Kansas City and I spent some time there and I realized Kansas City has developed in the, you know, almost 20 years since I've been there. But my experience with Indian food in Kansas City was, um, something. <laughs> and so I fully buy someone being from outside of Kansas City, not having had an Indian food experience. There's also little subtle language changes in a few places that I think are really to the benefit of the script in a lot of ways. And I think part of it, I, I chalk up to how great it is that they have people from diverse perspectives, including women in the writing room. So when Ted arrives and he's talking to Rebecca at first and she sends Beard off with Higgins, right? So to get set up with all that stuff. In the original script, she says, could you please take Coach Beard and have one of the girls get him and then lists all the stuff, right? And it's, it's, but it's language we hear all the time and it's language a lot of people wouldn't pick up on, right? And so in the shooting script, it is could you please take Coach Beard and have, and then it just has in parentheses, assistant's name, get him. Okay, and that's better, right? Because the assistant is now a person, it's not one of the girls. But in the actual show we get, could you please take Coach Beard and get him? So not only have they gotten rid of that kind of little language, but it also is great for character development, right? Because we've taken Higgins, who's the director of communications, at least currently, and put him in where she's giving him what might be considered menial tasks. So it helps to show her disdain for him. And it's just such a, it's, you know, a word. Um, but changing that one little word makes such a difference in the tone and also like the number of teeth that weren't set on edge by not saying, hey, have one of the girls do this, right? I mean, it would have kind of made sense because Rupert had been there shortly before and he would have just had like a bunch of girls to do whatever, you sure, know, sure. not even recognizing them as women. But the fact that that she just like, you know, you do it, Higgins. <laughs> So right. it, turns, it turns the tables. I like that. I just have to say my visceral reaction. I literally have like almost physical reaction to the word girl. I even like posted That's it about when there's, when there's soon... books with girl, like, oh, wait. yeah. As soon as I heard that, I was like, oh, Andrea's going to. Unless you're shit. under 12, I don't <laughs> yeah. want to hear about a girl. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. And yeah. why are they all dead <laughs> in the books? They're always dead. <laughs> okay, I'm done. It's fridging, right? Fridging. You know the term? Okay. I don't know. That's oh, right. yeah. yeah. Um, so, so, um, fridging is basically, and I'm going to get this wrong because it's in reference to something really specific that I think is in a comic book and probably Mikhaila knows this, but basically it's murdering a woman or having her horrific death happen in a way for no other reason than to motivate the main male protagonist. And, and when this happened that it's in reference to, I think the woman's body got put in a fridge or a freezer uh, do, you, do you all know I don't what know the origins no I just know the, the term and, yes. and like it's how it's used but I don't know that sounds about right though we know husband used it as a joke in the house as well and it's like can you like if I want something put in the fridge I'm like can you fridge that or he's like, <laughs> can you fridge that and I'm like, okay 
we're not killing women just to put stuff in the fridge. But yeah, that's basically <laughs> <laughs> thank goodness anyway we go through and a lot of that original interaction between ted and rebecca is pretty standard but when she gives him the tour of the club and is talking about post past owners there's a whole bunch that gets cut out from the original script that was just kind of one-off jokes and they're funny right but they wouldn't really develop anything i i don't think they contribute a whole lot they get cut out what does get included that wasn't in the original that ends up in the shooting script and the show is the the talk about you know this was used as a field hospital and you know during the war and people still say the soldiers are here right and it sets up that line for for ted where she asks if he believes in ghosts and he says i do but more importantly i i believe they need to believe in themselves not only is that great because it does sort of lay the groundwork for when they do the exorcism in the training room but if you think about it we get to season two and we find out that there is a ghost that Ted desperately wishes had believed in himself, right? His father, just that layering in there that pays off later, but it didn't get, it wasn't there in the original that they managed to add in to sort of more richly layer the show. I really appreciate a lot through the press conference remains the same. One thing is that it's both scripts uh, and it's been completely cut out. We don't see it at all. Right. So in between when we see Ted uh, leaving the the training grounds with with beard and nate you know in the little car and when ted actually walks up to his apartment right those are cut together in the episode but in between in the scripts there's actually a scene at the crown and acre and they go there and they have this interaction where we meet you know more effectively because we see them during the press conference but we meet the pb and j right the three guys at the pub we meet may they are almost physically threatening, right? They they yank Ted's chair back from the table. Baz tells him if he doesn't leave right away, there's going to be a fucking problem. I think in one of the, the drafts of the script, he uses that word that Michaela doesn't understand why Americans have such an issue with. <laughs> but the Americans don't understand. <laughs> yes. And it's very consistent with, you know, our sort of stereotype of both. I mean, I've seen sports fans, certainly in the States like that, our conceptualization of soccer hooligans they're, but the they're green street they're totally like they're so different in the script right right and and so not having that in their initial reaction or interaction right not having that there allows them to develop into more interesting more three-dimensional characters because they're no longer just these violent idiotic hooligans they don't come across as brilliant at least not early on and they certainly don't love ted at least early on but it gives them room to grow into something more interesting because it's not there so you say but paul does love his candor <laughs> You know, and we never would have gotten that. Like, that's amazing mm -hmm. to me. If they had come across as so aggressive right off the bat, then we wouldn't have had their beautiful development in Beard After Hours, for example. And we eventually did get them because Bug, Denbo and James Tarr are just what they were written like in the first script, in my opinion. Like, they're, they're very similar. I'll move on to the last scene. And there's a couple things that are in both scripts that are cut out that aren't in there. I think good removals. There's some tech issues with him when he starts talking to Henry, right? And I can see why they would help build the character, but at the same time, I don't think they add, I think they would have detracted from the emotional impact of that scene. But what I really love is how much the bones of it, the really important emotional bits, stay the same. And if you look in the original, there's actually just this little really endearing aside because it has a music cue and it's the Opus 26 by Dustin O'Halloran. That's actually the music used. And then in parentheses, it says no pressure, but we'd really love it if you played this as you read the rest. And I just love that so much because that's so, 
like, you know, you're with one of your friends and I'm like, oh, you have to look at this thing or like, look at this painting, but you have to listen to this song while you do, because these, like, it's just so, I don't know, adorable. Does that make sense to anybody else? Yeah, absolutely. I'm also going to assume Apple had something to do with the Ted not being, having tech problems, because they just want everybody to assume that their tech is super <laughs> easy to use. <laughs> not working. No, fair enough. But, but I do love that. And I think that song is absolutely perfect for that scene and I think I, I don't think it would have been the same without that so I, I love that they had that no, no listen to this right now as you read it you don't have to but it is just so interesting all the little changes like I said I could go on forever but I want to hear what the rest of y'all think about uh and what you came with um but how much we can see the changes and how much room they gave their characters to grow when they didn't sort of set them in stone as caricatures right from the start right from the first episode. I'm really interested in that because up until like two hours ago, we, we thought we had the same script. <laughs> so I was like, I, this can't be right because the joke that we both kind of like conferred on and realized we have their own script is uh, if you're riding a horse uh, oh, and you're comfortable, you're not doing it right. And when Marita shared something um, that's different, which I might not say because we might use it in a future episode, but I was like, no, this joke definitely ended with testicles in my script. <laughs> Definitely, it was a testicle joke, and that's how I, I knew. So, always got. Well, and what's interesting is I saw that and knew it was different than the. So I just assumed it was one of those things where they did like ten takes, and it was some ridiculous fucking joke that was different every time. And I'm like, all I want is like a master cut of those all strung together, doing whatever is that you know taking on a challenge is just like, and then like some weird thing. Didn't um, they say that like Higgins renamed his cat with every take? when it was oh, no, like no, I, 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 I thought that was the thing where they were like oh yeah when he was naming off his his cat he he just had a different name every time but ended up with Cindy Clawford I hope Iconic. that's true and I want a list I really I really want a list <laughs> well, I have a question about the scripts did they describe PB&J at all like did we get any snippets of Paul being who Paul is or Baz or Jeremy being that's, that was my I first thought in both of them, they're like the locals, Baz, Jeremy, and Paul, late 20s, are especially passionate. That's all it says about them, which I think is actually true and fair. It's just, you know, when they're like threatening to have a fucking problem with Ted if he doesn't leave right away is, is not. And it doesn't ring true with me because she just wouldn't let that happen. Do you know what I mean? Like, even if mm -hmm. she kind of agreed with them, she just she just wouldn't. Well, and she cuts them off, right, and bars them from the pub for two weeks. But again, I'm like, that just doesn't. They, they seem like the kind of guys that she, you know, never has to kick out. She's just always keeps them enough in line, but they also don't seem violent. I think they're less interesting if they just are violent, if that makes sense. Yeah, if they're total dicks versus just being kind of, yeah, like we come to the pub every, you know. We dicks. Lunch. Yeah, yeah. But they're just we dicks instead of being <laughs> Giant ones. Yeah, giant floppy cocks. <laughs> Emma <laughs> talks about that in the last part of the book too, which I really appreciated. <laughs> I'll speak more. Oh, that's speak. right. That's right. In the libel section. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> do you, Do you want to elaborate on that for the yeah, point? I don't know if I can do it justice necessarily, but um, she talks about being careful when you're writing about people from your life to make them indistinguishable so that you don't get sued if you get published or the publishing company doesn't get sued. And she goes on and on, especially if, if a male has done you wrong, you write him with very wee yeah. and wee penis. <laughs> because he will never admit that it's him. 
You will right. never be sued because he will that never That is the key. Thank you, Maria, for bringing it home for me. That was really good, Marita. I'm fascinated with the scripts and I definitely want to get that one off of you that I've not got. And we can actually, have a you guys just longer. need to share it. Like, just send them to all of us. Yeah, I, let's do it. Like, sure. I haven't read either of these, so yeah, they're good fun. They're good fun. Well, we, we should we could do a full episode on just the pilot script alone, but we could do that. Yeah, yeah, ask for it if you want it. Let's take a break for some comments from you, Greyhounds. Oops, and it points to a paragraph that they found very relatable. Anne Lamont reads. Now, I have a number of writer friends who do not take notes out there in the world, who say it's like not taking notes in class, but listening instead. I think if you have the kind of mind that retains important and creative thoughts, that is, if your mind still works, you're very lucky and you should not be surprised if the rest of us do not want to be around you. Now, back to the podcast. Bex, I'm really looking forward to hearing from you. Yeah, I want to start digging into a couple of these character development elements that Marita was talking about. Um, I'm going to talk about two characters in particular, the first one being Ted uh, and the second one being Keely. So first off is this idea of parent-child relationships. Lamont starts out her book talking about her inspiration for writing being her father and how she learned the hard way, the value of what he did. You know, there's a a whole thing where she talks about thinking he didn't have a real job because he didn't go to an office every day. And I love that. Um, My husband accuses me of thinking that of him because he works from home as well as a musician. So (laughs) my family absolutely cannot comprehend because I'm from a pretty blue collar background that my job involves sitting on the couch all day. (laughs) Like they they keep forgetting. I have a, Hey, we need to go do this. I'm I'm working. I'm actually doing a job here. And she also talks about his writer friends that he would have come over and that sort of dynamic between her father and his friends. But she also speaks a lot about spending time with him and just writing together. You know, just that act of being in the same space and doing their own writing. This is where she learned what to do and also what not to do when it came to writing. Like all of this came from her father. That was sort of the inspiration behind it. In this section, and this is, I think the first chapter, I think it's pretty much right off the bat. She speaks about their relationship, but more importantly, how his diagnosis with brain cancer allowed her to sit down and write his story. Like that sort of served as the the spark that that got her going to write something new and original. And she'd been rehashing this one story over and over and it wasn't going anywhere. This sort of gave her a new direction. It was a coping device for her is kind of the impression that I got through reading it. But it was also something that served as a way to help her remain close with her father uh, up until his death. And and the fact that she finished it before he died and he was able to read it is is a really heartwarming aspect of it. I thought of Ted right away, Ted and his father and their relationship when I was going through this, you know, um, Ted brings up his father many times throughout the series, you know, little bits here and there. And we kind of build on it again, talking about letting your character sort of develop organically. I'm assuming that based on the way that Jason has talked about Rebecca and Ted being soulmates and that whole uh, no weddings in a funeral scene where they have like, like that exact same moment in time, something life altering happens to them. 
that he had in mind where the the story with the father like what those origins were but he didn't reveal it to us the viewers all along and and I appreciate that sort of slow development we do know in season one that he died when Ted was only 16 so we get we get that up front but we don't learn that it was suicide until episodes episode 10 in season two in that moment uh, no weddings and a funeral Ted speaks about his relationship with his father, this idea of going to the bar every weekend um, and playing darts with, well, did he play darts with his father or did he play darts while his father was there? I don't know if we ever get that. That I, I don't remember the wording on that quote. So yeah. I think it was, yes, he played darts say up until yeah, I the like died when I was 16. Okay. Cause I got, there was that moment when they were, when uh, Ted and Michelle were talking and uh, they just sent Henry off to play right. darts. So I, I wondered if like his dad was like drinking and hanging out with people and, and Ted just went and played darts. I wanted it to be that they were doing it together because that sort of matches with this idea of, of Anne and her relationship with her father and developing, it was kind of their thing. Right. So darts with his father was Ted's thing. Um, when, he, when he threw that dart and said barbecue sauce, and obviously it's acting, but I read that as these were really happy times in my life. And as someone who was dragged to bars, not for an alcoholic problem or anything, just because I can't be arsed with you, um, on a Saturday or whatever, I don't look back on that now as an adult and think, oh, those were some happy memories, even though I was a kid at the time and probably had some really good fun. So to me, with Ted looking so misty-eyed about it, I, I just can't see it having any negative sort of connotations, but that's just my pickup on it, I think. No, I appreciate that. I, and, and it feeds into what, what I was seeing there. So that that's good. We also learn in the series that, you know, I, this is in the conversation with what was the conversation with Jamie Tart? I think, right? Where he says that his dad was uh, tougher on himself than he ever was on Ted. And this is when we really get an impression of the effect that he had on Ted's life. I, I think, because again, still, we don't know how he died. We just know that he did die. But now we're getting a little bit more into Ted's ability as an adult to look at his father now in hindsight and, and understand maybe where he was coming from, even if he's still concerned with this idea of quitting, right? You know, Ted, Ted's father and his actions definitely influenced who Ted is and who Ted became. It's not the same as Anne and her father, where he was a writer and she became a writer. We don't know anything about Ted's father's job. We don't know, was he a coach or not? We've never been told anything along those lines, but that approach to life, you know, Ted not quitting or giving up, it's the opposite here. It's because he sees his father as having given up and he refuses to, to do that. He's not going to give up on life, but he's also not going to give up on others around him. And we also know that uh, oftentimes mental health issues are genetic. And so it's very possible that his father had similar issues that he, as he does, but didn't necessarily have the tools to, to deal with it either. So and the time would have been so different, like for men to speak out about anything like that. Yeah. I mean, 40 it, years ago. Yeah, well, I mean, it would have been, what, the early 90s. And so, yeah, absolutely. 
So it, it's interesting if I can jump in here um, because she talks about both her father and, and also spending time with her best friend while they died of cancer. And I wanna tread lightly here because I know um, folks in this conversation have varying cancer experiences, right? Both with themselves and uh, other loved ones, but I've, and it really is a, a gift with someone that you love. You, you don't want to lose them and it's horrible when you lose them, but to be able to spend that last time with them. So both my aunt who I was very close to and my father just this past year, my aunt passed away a few years back, but my father, and to spend that time with them bedside and really spend that, you know, those last few weeks or month or whatever with them. And so when Anne Lamott talks about learning from this experience to live like you're dying, right? You know, really get the most out of that. The thing with Ted is he doesn't live like he's dying. He lives like everyone else is, right? It, it is a wonderful and horrible at the same time experience. It's it's an important experience to be there for someone when that happens, right? It's very profound and important, but at the same time, it's draining and exhausting and it is not sustainable over years and years and years. And if Ted's been living his entire life like that without the self-care that he needs, of course, he's going to end up an absolute mess. Of course, his personal relationships are going to be a disaster because the kind of energy required to sort of be present for someone like that without taking care of yourself is not a long-term possibility. I just have to second that completely. Like taking care of my husband when he passed was like almost the best time of, you know what I mean? Like in some ways, the time I think most of is like what I cherish. Like when I, right, when I meet people who like their husband died suddenly, I just have this moment of like, oh my God, I had time to say goodbye to you. And you know what I mean? Like how profound that is. Like, like could not have said that better, Marita. Well, and just knowing that you could be there for them and make them yeah. feel better and, and yes. make sure that whatever the things they want at the end are there for them. Whereas if they're taken suddenly, you just didn't have that chance. And it's not through negligence and it's not through bad behavior. It's just who expects that to happen, right? But I think the suddenness of, of Ted's father's death really changed the way he he does that. And he, like I said, he lives like everyone else is dying all the time and you just can't. I have something to piggyback on that, okay. which I loved in this book. And um, I too held my mom's hand when she passed from cancer. Um, and I'm a cancer patient now. Um, I love how Anne talks about normalizing the humanness of everything. Like even her, her jealousy or any bad behavior. I love how she just learned, and I forget the quote that she used or where she got it from. Um, oh, it was a writer, it was so brilliant. I just can't remember, it was towards the end of the book where they just kind of said, of course, you're going to be jealous. We're, oh, I think I'm remembering it a little bit. It was in the jealousy part. Of course, you're going to be jealous because we're all raised to want to have these great things. And then when you don't get it, of course, you're going to end up jealous. But in relation to that and with her dad dying of cancer, and this is part of a reason why I've shared my own story, but making something so terrible, funny or relatable so that it helps somebody else out is so powerful. Like if there was a book that just wasn't so precious and you know, it was actually brought some humor to the fact that somebody is going through something terrible, which I feel like Ted Lasso does on such a huge scale. They've done that so beautifully. And I don't know if when you all are reading the book that you kind of pictured different parts of Ted in it or different, like the writer's room, or you know, I just pictured Brendan and Brett in a room talking, or you know what I mean, the writers, because I think so much of what they're doing is so powerful and making the really hard stuff funny so that people know that what they're going through isn't unusual and they can normalize how they're feeling about it because we're all told not to do any of that stuff. 
Right. Yeah, that's exactly it. I was I was nearly shamed for some of the stuff that like when my husband had testicular cancer, which was very quickly dealt with, went through chemotherapy as a preventative thing for the future. So by the time he was going through chemotherapy, we knew that mostly this was just a preventative measure. But he had said from the start, don't fucking pity me. Like, this is just the way I want to deal with it. We make jokes and we laugh. That's not to say that we would impose that upon anybody else, but in our situation with it. But if we'd maybe had that sort of thing in front of other people, you could feel the air getting sucked out the room. Do you know what I mean? Because like, can't joke about that. It's like, but you have to. You know, you have to. That's why I crack jokes about it all the time in Clubhouse when we talk. And... I love, yeah, I love. I'm going to go back. I, I don't think it's the book quote you were thinking of, but one that she picked from a poem from another author that I loved was The Book of My Enemy Has Been Remaindered. Been remaindered. <laughs> I love that so me. much. I worked at a bookstore when I was in high school and college, and that just made me howl. I cackled so hard at that one. Yep, a little black mark on the top of it, a little Barbie sticker. Yeah, it just she gives you such freedom to just have your feelings, no matter what they look like, and calls herself out on her own feelings. And I feel like that's such a gift. And it does give everyone permission to feel those feelings, which I think is an important role that Dr. Sharon plays, but that's not in my analysis at all. I don't know. (laughs) We can dig into that later, but yeah. And I think seeing her model that over and over, and I'm starting to talk like a teacher now, but that's what I am, is you need that in your characters, your good guys and your bad guys to give them three-dimensionality, right? They can't never have impure thoughts and they can't always have bad thoughts or they're just caricatures right so the fact the villain doesn't move on the villain right she talks about herself like that gives gives such a dimensionality to you know this is how i'm going to write about myself this is how we're going to write about everybody because otherwise they're not going to be interesting they're not going to ring beard after hours because it showed such depth and so many people just not really being their best selves and it just made it so rich and perfect and juicy for me. That also helps me sort of transition to the other topic I wanted to bring in, which was um, like Keely. I know like just sort of her character development and the way that she has been like drafted and redrafted in a sense. Um, in the book, Lamott talks about the three drafts of writing, right? And it's obviously it's not always so linear. Sometimes it's four, sometimes it's five, sometimes it's 12, you know, different things, but sort of these basic three drafts. The first one she called the down draft. Uh, she also referred to it as the child's draft. I call it the vomit pass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I call it zero draft, but basically it's the shitty first draft right? Get everything out and down on the page, on your computer, handwritten, whatever you're doing. Let whatever comes out, get onto the page, deal with how to shape it up later. The second one she refers to as the updraft. This is where you fix it up, where you say things more accurately, more concisely, you begin to organize and articulate your ideas more clearly and fully. And then the final one she calls the dental draft. So, you know, I'm going to talk about teeth for a minute if you need to fast forward 30 seconds. (laughs) Um, But she says this is like going to the dentist, right? Lamont compares this draft to checking every tooth to see if it's loose, if it's cracked, if it's decayed, but most importantly, to see if it's healthy. This is polishing things up to make sure that it all works and that the character and the story continue 
with their strengths throughout the entirety of the work. So it's where, you know, if you got to pull a tooth, you got to pull a tooth. If you got to throw a crown on it, go for it. I really see Keely in this concept of three drafts. And not that I think that the original Keeley was some sort of shitty first draft or anything. Do you think that if I remember correctly, she wasn't necessarily initially created to be the way she is? I mean, obviously, we've as we've learned already, most of the characters <laughs> kind of did their own thing. I feel like I'm going to have to give you control of the mute button for this part because I'm also intensely passionate about the character development of um, Keely. So I'm just going <laughs> to try and sit quietly in the corner. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't have too much on here. I just wanted to kind of cap it up. You know, whether or not Ted Lasso goes beyond three seasons, we do have a three season arc planned, right? That was sort of the initial idea. And so I want to look through this three season arc with Keely and the three drafts. So in season one, Keely's not the best draft of herself. In fact, I don't, like I said, I don't think the writers even initially planned for her to be as important and as flushed out of a character as she turned out to be. I, I don't know. Was she just going to be some like ditzy influencer character? Was that just the basic idea? And they were like, yeah, yeah, we'll just get Jamie Tart having some Jamie Tart's tart that's not who she became right that's who we see in that first episode with like the you know I'm gonna you can watch my ass as I walk out the door kind of thing and we see in these in this first season especially early on her trying out lots of different things right the the lion or panda bit the fact that she talks about being famous for being sort of famous like I'm famous for being sort of famous there's not a lot to work with here right her relationship with Jamie is a mess was she planned to stay with Jamie that whole time? Was she planned to be in a couple episodes and then written out? We don't know. Like maybe they had some intention of putting her with Roy, but I didn't get that impression. Like early season one, Keely and Roy would not have been a good match in, in any way. Do you think at all that Juno's, and I'm sorry to, to jump in. Don't jump in, jump in. I feel like in that, even in the pilot episode, I think because Juno is such an extraordinary actor. Yeah, you're right. See so much going on when she goes over to the locker that Ted has changed the picture on, and she's fully expecting him to just have been goggling at her naked breasts. And then she sees that he wasn't. You can read it all on her face. And then she softens so measurably and walks back over to Ted and helps him hang the believe sign crookedly again, which I thought was just a perfect yeah, cute little thing. But you can see there's so much more depth than just the girl who walked out. And it feels like, and this is how I feel personally about her, that she had a lot more depth from then. And I think they also said that because Juno has so much depth and is such a gifted actor, that um, they gave her more because of how much she brought to it. And I feel like we got a glimpse of that early on. With yeah, we definitely get glimpses of it. And that's the bit is that like in that downdraft child's draft version of writing, there's always going to be these little nuggets of greatness. But then there's also mm -hmm. gonna be a bunch of whatever. And I think some of Keely in early season one is, well, we're gonna see what works. And I don't wanna say that they like threw it up and saw it worked and let the other stuff go. I do think it was intentionally carried through. I don't think Keely herself 
as a character, as, as an individual within the show was herself developed, right? Even if no. they knew where they wanted to go with her, they yeah. had her as less stable and less like knowing her, her journey at that point. And not necessarily in a bad way, just in a in a process way. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, we can go back to that original script that they probably used to shop around the show. And she's described as 31 British, former page three girl. But what, what hits me there is used to having her book judged by its cover, which I think is perfect for her because she's used to people making assumptions about her based on what she looks like. But I don't think she knows at that point in the show what assumptions or what people should really know about her. Right. right. Mm-hmm know who she is so I, I think it's interesting the way it, you know she's aware of people perceiving her like this but that doesn't mm-hmm. really knows who she is I also think that there's the, the fact that this isn't a book about screenplay it's a book about writing which makes the difference because when you're writing a screenplay once you've written the character once you like, even in the updraft once you hand that over to the actor that's theirs and you have literally no say mm. or shouldn't have any say on how the actor interprets that and works with it, that's then up to the director. So I think with Juno, and you're absolutely spot on, Chrisanne, is that Brett himself admitted that they started writing um, Keely very differently after seeing Juno's sense of humour, how playful she was and how she would call people out. So in a way, they sort of wrote a character judged by a cover. They didn't know, what, like Marita said, what they wanted to actually show. And Juno is what gave them what they wanted to show and I think that might be where the distinction is is that this book is specifically just on writing in general and not like screenplay in general mm-hmm. that so many writers also have difficulty letting their stuff go so it's great that it's such a different process for authors that write novels than screenplays too that's really interesting yeah yeah and when you mentioned that Rebecca had a big uh role in Keeley sort of figuring herself out not that she told Keely who to be but that she helped uncover that and that's part of the updraft of Keely as far as I see it you know this is where she's sort of fixing herself up to what she wants to be what she wants to do just trying to figure things out right with the help and support of Rebecca encouragement from Ted even and Mm -hmm. eventually the love and affection from Roy She's starting to better understand who she is for herself. You know, she is Keely Jones. She is not identified by her role in relation to anyone else. Yes, she's Rebecca's best friend. Yes, she's Roy Kent's girlfriend. You know, yes, she's the PR person for the team, but she's Keely Jones first and foremost. But you just struck me with that. Like what I love about that, you know, that point when even Roy like realizes like he almost was underestimating Keely in his own way and was just like talking about the way she looked in those photos without him. And she was like, she looked fierce, like she was powerful and like, and it like gave him pride and fear and, you know, like even his just like, you know, like, no, she was absolutely fucking perfect without me. And just like that wounded him and it oh, oh I love it. <laughs> <laughs> But that that leads me to season three, because we do have a, a strange Keely Roy cliffhanger at the end of season two. And, you know, I'm, I'll be interested to go back to this episode after season three is is over and I, I can listen back to see what I thought versus what happened. If 
season one is the downdraft and season two is the updraft, then is season three the dental draft? I hope to see her polished up and fully understanding her path as much as one can, right? I mean, we're humans, our paths always change. That's fine. Keeping the elements of her life and the experiences that work for her and shedding herself of those things that don't benefit her. She's moving forward with the PR firm, which is great. And as I mentioned, her situation with Roy is a little bit rocky at the moment. I do think their endgame, that's a healthy part of the dental draft. I really hope that that stays. I, I agree with you. I think they're in. <laughs> but, but they do have to, you know, they do have to floss to get that just right. <laughs> I really hope that we end the series at, or at least the three season arc with seeing the best version of Keely, not necessarily a perfect version, but the best version of her for that finale. That is my bit on Keely Jones and the three drafts by Anne Lamott. <laughs> I, love that. I think there's no meta too when Ted says that he wants to help all of the players become the best versions of themselves. They're actually the writers are doing that with the characters too. And that's, that's so true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> was that you? Maria? Did you hear that? Did you oh, was that your dog? Yeah, <laughs> that was a really good snore. Sorry, Maria, I didn't mean to think that was you. I just thought somebody said, "Oh, <laughs> that's her dog." <laughs> that's, yeah, she's like, "Are you talking shit on the internet again?" Like, yes, I am. Let's take a break for some comments from you, Greyhounds. Oops, in it on Twitter said the normalising of mental illness I found very comforting. I don't know, it might be glib to others, but I found it comforting. Also, the bits on perfectionism I really need to take to heart because I have so much trouble starting in things, assignments, essays, because for some reason I want the first draft to be near perfect. Ridiculous. And the short assignments chapter was really helpful too because I got overwhelmed by the seeming enormity of something I need to do so often. It is really relatable and it spurred me on a little too. I hope it did for you, Greyhounds. Now, back to the podcast. Andrea, what have you got for us? Hello. Um, Yeah, so mine, I have a few different pieces. I guess I just kind of want to start with, um, it was interesting for me reading this book as someone who loves books, I, it was almost one of those, I don't want to see how the sausage is made moments, right? Like, <laughs> just give me the finished book. Like, like there was, it, it, yeah, I, um, I really loved the book, but I also had a lot of trouble being like, okay, like, okay, you know, this is like, I'm not a writer also. I don't do any writing in my life. So <laughs> for me, it was just a little bit, like, I just found some of the parts of the book to be You'd be um, a good writer. interesting to me. What was the that? amount of books you've read, you'd be an excellent writer. Because they say to be a good writer, you have to be a good reader. So a reader, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was totally, I was just like, this is like the sausage getting made. Like, I don't want to know. Don't show, you know, like, don't tell me, don't tell me. <laughs> don't break my dreams. But there was a lot of interesting things too. Like, I felt like it's the really fascinating connection for me, like I said, about understanding who the person is, even if it's not on the page and the way the actors do that too. And like, that was really cool. So yes, like I said, I had just kind of pulled out a few quotes and connections for me to the show. It was a little bit about characters and a little bit about, yes, the way that it's written and what I think, you know, some, a lot of examples I see in 
Ted Lasso that I feel we're being hit on in Bird by Bird. So to repeat what Beck said in the beginning, right? He's saying it twice. We hear, we hear Bird by Bird twice in the series. The first time is when Crystal Palace lost. And the second time is after the Man City loss. And the episode following Man City, as we know, is of course, Beard, Beard, Beard After Hours, one of, you know, this group's favorite episodes. Luckily, we're all aligned there. But after season one, and the, I'm sorry, in the season one example of Bird by Bird, it's very similar. So they lose Ted's little pep talk to him as Bird by Bird. And he kind of rolls as, you know, he's just kind of like, um, you know, like I've heard, like you could tell I've heard this a million times from him. It's kind of eye roll. And then the next day there's a, 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 you know, a conversation about Beard comes in looking tired and stuff. And he's like, Ooh, you went to bed late. And he's like, didn't go to bed at all. And you know, he's just kind of like, Ooh, like he kind of makes like a little face and you're just like, Ooh, like what happened? Right. And then basically Beard after hours is the same thing. Is so is this, is this a but, triggering phrase for Beard? Like you say bird by bird and he's like, nope, now I got to drink. <laughs> I got to wow. go out all day. Wow. And, like, and I do think it's a, I do think it's really interesting how, right? Like I feel like the sentiment bird by bird, you know, very easily explained in this book about just taking things one piece at a time, one thing at a time, right? And there's a lot of connections on that. Beard is going through, he has to go through his thing piece by piece, bird by bird, right? Uh, there's so many examples in the show of how all the pieces need to fall in place. There's a ton of ch uh, chess references, one, you know, one piece at a time and you're making moves and things are being manipulated and thought of a, a piece at a time or a move at a time. The reference too that Ted makes of the first piece that needs to fall into place is, you know, in that man's chest, you know, talking about Roy when he's talking about how he's the first piece to fall to make this happen. And so when I think of, when I was thinking a lot about, you know, again, this connection of these two, like Beard going out. And I feel like Beard has nights like that a lot. Like a lot of the things he references, some of the things him and Jane do are just so like kind of off the wall anyway. So I feel like, I do feel like these weird nights out that Beard has are not necessarily 100% tied to, right? Like losses and stuff. But I do think that he has his own way of dealing with that grief in that way, right? Like that kind of sadness that he has or the frustration that he has. Maybe grief isn't the right word. Can I jump in there? Oh, please go ahead. Just with what we were saying about the pints, I don't remember what, what was last time or the time before, but how Beard had bought those four pints for Ted when he had to let Ben Troy and we said that isn't the actions of a man he's done this before basically this is something he's so maybe he's treating Ted the way that he treats himself when he's having a hard time it just goes out and gets utterly pissed <laughs> yeah, thought if, of that. if it was an alcoholism discussion it was definitely F Scott Fitzgerald so it was last time <laughs> that's true yeah <laughs> believe me that book would have turned me back to drink if I wasn't so strong-willed <laughs> And I'm not right. Beard, beard kind of, you know, walks away and he doesn't really have a plan, right? He doesn't really have a plan, but there is this sense of just kind of pieces falling into place and maybe not so much about the team, but his relationship with Jane and where he kind of goes through this, how do I, how would I call it? Like, uh, I didn't write this down. It's more just kind of me thinking, but like, he kind of goes through this process, making sense of everything in his head, but also kind of working through some of the relationship problems and other things in his head all at the same time. And what really came together at the end of Beard's Night Out was his relationship with Jane, right? Like they, like we don't necessarily see the full conclusion, but it's obvious that he finds her. It's obvious that he, they make some kind of connection to each other there on the dance floor with the hula hoop and all that. All of the things that happened that night 
we're all kind of, again, pieces falling into place, even negatively, right? Like it, the only, the only kind of reference to what happened to Jamie and Roy, right? Like that very emotional scene that Jamie and Roy had um, a- after the Man City loss and um, Jamie's father is being a total prick. Roy hugs him and there's, you know, just that, love that scene. But like the only, like they kind of don't reference it again, which is kind of shocking, but at the same, <laughs> but at the same time, they're, they're, the coming the coming together then at the end of him seeing the three guys, Bug and his dad, I don't remember his dad's name, James, and the three of them kind of coming down the passageway again and having that reconnection again is almost kind of like a, again, a piece of that. I don't know if this is making any sense. Totally. It's a great way to connect an episode that is a standalone episode with the rest of the story arc, you know, right? knowing like uh, that they were going to have that interaction or that they'd had that interaction. I don't know the order of filming. They were able to kind of slip that in and, and link the episodes together. And it again, falls into place for me for saying spurred by bird, all these like I think, I think the, the coolest thing that I've noticed about Ted Lasso is how deliberate everything is. Like the way that we notice colors and the way that we notice, you know, the way that they reference things here and there. I was even paying attention to, um, speaking of colors, like the first time he re- she re- uh, Rebecca receives one of the pink boxes of biscuits, her, her shirt and her lipstick are both this pink shade that kind of complement the box and stuff. Like there's, there's just, everything seems to be so thoughtful. And to me, it's almost like the, like, it's almost like he walked, they all walked in at the first day of this and like, everyone read this book. And this is how we're going to write this show. This is how we're going to, you know what I mean? Like from soup to nuts as well. And to use a Tedism from soup to nuts, it's not just the writers, the actors, it's the set design, the costume, everything is so intensely thought out that it's, yeah, amazing one of the other so then uh i put a quote down about that father the father section i think um bex you would kind of reference this um writing taught my father to pay attention write down your thoughts and observations put a little bit down on paper every day read all the great books and plays he could get his hands on he taught us to be bold and original and to let ourselves make mistakes that's ted lasso (laughs) i don't know like Right. Like there's like just the, the observing things, you know, it's, it's very much how he seems to lead everything, how he seems to lead the team. He isn't afraid to fail. We tried it. We didn't work out like just, okay, let's turn around. We're going to do it again. We're going to try something else. Like he doesn't seem to be deterred in a lot of ways. Um, and he's really paying attention. Like he, the fact that he doesn't know, you know, like part of the, like that he doesn't know anything about football, but yet is successfully coaching this team because he pays attention, right? Like how focused he becomes on Sam immediately, like, right. Like he sees all, he sees all the pieces immediately that need to fall into place to get this team going in a different direction. And right. There's Roy, there's Jamie and there's Sam. And he immediately focuses on the fact that Sam isn't happy and he knows it like within minutes that he's standing there watching him. He's like, what's wrong with him? What happened? Someone else might just be like, Oh, that guy's not doing well. Like, do we need to consider cutting him? He's no, he's immediately thinking of him more on an emotional level. Like what's he going through? Another quote that kind of relates here is uh, when, after she gives, after she gives example of bird by bird about, you know, uh, 
the person was writing writing the paper and he was overwhelmed by this like catalog of birds and he's like just go bird by bird she explains I tell this story because it usually makes a dent in the tremendous sense of being overwhelmed that my students experience sometimes it actually gives them hope and hope is the power of being cheerful in circumstances we know to be desperate that's and believe <laughs> Right. It's, believe, yeah, it's I mean, it's the, again, the way he immediately targeted Sam, you know, again, it's just like this moment of clarity he had about it that just, you know, was different than everyone, right? Like that, you know, the, the, the previous coach probably would have just cut him and would have thought he wasn't doing well. Right. But like, you know, understanding immediately that like, oh, well, he, this is his first time away from his parents and his home country. He was, I mean, at this point, he's what, 19, 20 years old. So I'll hop in here again. And I guess I just am going to sound like a broken record, but it's an interesting thing in the original scripts. When he first goes in the locker room, you know, where they're trying to figure out what smells like X body spray. The scene that's described has much more of a focus in on a couple of lockers. And one of them is, it's not even Sam in the first draft. It is um, it, it's who becomes Sam, quite obviously, but it's, you know, they have it written then as a, the a Nintendo kid. Switch and the chocolate bars and stuff. Right. That- so they, sh- yeah, they show Nintendo Switch and chocolate bars. And in the, in the very first script, it's a kid from somewhere in South America, but Ted flat out says to Beard that they need to keep an eye on this kid. Right. And they also show Roy Kent's locker where you see like oxycodone for, for pain relief and things that just make it really clear that he's old and falling apart. And I, you know, I can see how those set the stage, but I like that they left them out and let us see more about Sam in a future episode and we get more about Roy without having it all just thrown at us right up front. I think that was much, much better um, development. And and those pieces, those birds that we got, we got little glimpses of them first instead of a book of British birds description. Here is this bird and here is this bird and here is this bird. <laughs> Here's this one. Yeah. <laughs> Not that bird. <laughs> Come on. Leave it to Michaela. <laughs> Do you guys remember the quote in the book where she talks about, and it's such a beautiful quote, tackling Mount McKinley with a dentist's drill or a dentist's file? Oh, it's it's um, such a great quote, and I wish that I could remember it exactly. But um, I love that we get to see how overwhelming it could be and how they just break it down step by step. Like Ted doesn't freak out. He just literally almost, it's almost formulaic. You know what I mean? How the series kind of mirrors the book. Uh, and I find that just to be so fascinating and so amazing after having read the book, after being such a Ted head for such a long time and knowing the episodes, it, right. it feels like they really did use the book to inform the series. Yeah. Like yeah. I literally expect, I, I would not be surprised if it was like, oh yeah, we all had to read that before we started, you know, like oh, yeah. required yeah. reading. But why did Ted read it? Is was Ted, Ted a writer? Well, Lamont does talk about um, how she wanted to find a funny book after her dad died, like a funny book about cancer. And so maybe this like funny Mm. book about death and like the way that she approaches it, maybe he'd read something else by her and pick this one up along the way. I thought I I loved what she wrote, which was our psychic muscles cramp around our wounds, the pain of childhood, the losses and disappointments of adulthood, the humiliation suffered in both to keep us from getting hurt in the same place again, to keep foreign substances out. So these wounds never have a chance to heal. Perfectionism is one way our muscles cramp. Um, in some cases, we don't even know that the wounds and the cramping are there, but both limit us. They keep us moving and writing in tight, worried ways. They keep us standing back or backing away from life, keep us from experiencing life in a naked and immediate way. So how do we break through them and go on? Perfectionism is a mean frozen form of idealism. 
a person's faults are largely what makes him or her likable. That really connects for me what you were saying earlier about Ted. Like he doesn't, he doesn't want us to see his faults. We, he's constantly like, no, like his, his whole thing, which I think is good usually of no, like, okay, that didn't work. Things aren't going well. I'm just going to, I'm just going to keep moving forward. Keep, you know, like is a great thing, but it's also it, like he does it so much and he ignores his feelings and his things so much that it, it turns in this other way. Like, I think it's something we've been hinting about a little bit, or I have been kind of hinting a little bit about in clubhouse that like his over idealism and his over positivity at points, like, especially now in season two is starting to become like, dude, like, no, like, you know, look at what Nate's doing. Like, how can you be so like everything we find, everything we find so much where it's, it's come around the other side. Just going to say, it reminded me very much of the truth will set you free, but first it'll piss you off very with the very start of that, where it's like when you're writing, sometimes I think that's why I struggle because I don't want to look back. And I think the best stories come from doing that, you know, and it's hard, mm-hmm. it's hard to do it. So yeah, it's like, I often as well read and I'll write a first draft of something and then do nothing else with it because reading my own work is like wading through toxic waste. Yeah. So, I, I just thinking of that is I, I do more academic writing than, than creative writing, but I have a practice where I sit down for at least 15 minutes each morning and zero draft. And sometimes I just write things like, I don't know what I'm going to write about today. Like that's the first sentence of probably half of the things that I sit down and write, but eventually it turns into something. And then at the end of each month, I print out those pages and I go through and I highlight anything that's like worth keeping. And sometimes it's a sentence on, on a page and that's it. Like out of the whole full page. And, and it really is finding those little nuggets of goodness inside that garbage that is, is everywhere around it. So anyway, that's really cool. (laughs) I love how she brings up that you need to have somebody read your first draft. Who's going to be somebody that you trust that will give you the encouragement where you need it and also call you out and help you make it better where you need it. And I think that I don't think I could trust anyone enough to ever, ever show them a first draft of my work. So this gives me fucking, I'm sweating thinking about it. (laughs) Well, this is funny because I've, you know, I've done plenty of academic writing, which is, you know, dry science writing and I'm good at that. But, you know, when I grow up, I've always wanted to be a writer and part of what I loved about this book is it gives you permission for you to be a writer without it ever being good or anyone ever reading it. (laughs) I'm like, oh, I could just do that. But one of the first things I thought of was when we run out of books to cover on this show, we can just take this private and be our own little writers group. (laughs) Hell yes. By the way, because the book made me want to write. And I love that she was like, if you can't figure out what to write, write a letter. And I read that because I finished the book last night and I read that after I wrote my letter to beard after hours and oh, I thought oh, that was phenomenal. I so valid I just have to jump in and say if you could go to um I think the best place to be would be Ted Lasso's life's Twitter Kevin because he reshared the letter that you had done on the clubhouse not enough people heard that that was spectacular I genuinely truly listening it felt like it could have been written by one of the writers like if you told me that I would have believed you I thought it was fantastic so go to Ted Lasso's Life's Twitter and look for the tweet about Chris Ann Morgan's letter to Beard After Hours because 
Yeah, it's beautiful. And mm-hmm. you know, um, and one of yeah, it was interesting too because like I actually have a friend who writes science fiction, and she has me read her books. And I never really like, I was just like, okay, yeah, I'll read your books. I didn't think about that. But then I was reading this and I was just kind of like, oh my God, like she lets me read her books. It's like an I felt, owner. Yeah, yeah. I was just like, oh my God. <laughs> um, well, one other thing I really want to quickly say about perfectionism, Rebecca, her perfectionism with her relationships, like that scene where, where she's talking when they're sitting on the couch, it's Rebecca and Keely on the couch. Higgins and Stanning in season two, and she's freaking out about going to meet, uh, well, you know, whoever, Nate, or I'm sorry, uh, Sam over at Latucci. <laughs> that would have been something. Yeah. And, and, we're at Latucci, <laughs> and she Woo! says, yeah. And she's just like, well, what if it goes wrong? What, you know, like, how, do, how am I going to know if this is going to work out and it goes wrong? It's just like, well, you don't know if anything's going to go right. Like, you know, like this perfectionism she's looking for in a relationship is going to constantly, you know, fail her. And it's just interesting that she, you know, I mean, someone who seems like there's so much about her that seems so put together and she comes across as so well put together and kind of perfect. She's beautiful. She's tall. She's stunning. She's intelligent. She has business like, yeah, right. She, she's, she has action figurey arms. She's perfect. Action figurey arms. But Kiwi right? calls her out in that moment as well, doesn't she? Because she's yeah, laughing she about Sam liking Ratatouille, Ratatouille. And um, and just had to do Jamie's ratatouille. But yeah, like she, so that goes back to the blue collar thing because she really gets schooled by Kaylee on how that she's just being elitist, basically. I love it. And Higgins is just like, well, you could just tell him how you really feel, you know? Like, yeah, it's so straightforward. How about this for an idea? (laughs) Be completely honest, right? And just, and that perfectionism that she holds is holding her back completely from, you know, finding true love because she's trying to find this perfect thing, this person that matches her perfectly. And dare I tread on this water here, but like, there's a lot of things about Sam that are really good for her. You know, um, there's a lot of things about Ted that could be really good for her, but like, yeah, she has to put a lot aside to either stay with Sam or Ted, you know, to make that a real relationship. Like there's a lot she's gonna have to come to terms with in herself. I love that Keely also helps Rebecca kind of step out of her perfectionism as well, like you were just saying, but like the whole basis of their friendship and thank God they let that grow. Thank God they let that Polaroid develop in the series. Yeah. Um, Because so much about how Keely reflects back to Rebecca helps her step out of that two-dimensional held hostage to the vision of perfection that she was born or grew up to um, to uphold, you know, looking a certain way, being with a certain type of man. And we get mm-hmm. to see so much more of Rebecca behind, you know, all of the beauty and all of the, you know, all of, all of the vision that she is. Um, and my last quote then that um, relates, we'll get back again to Ted, the section about the, she says, the rational mind doesn't nourish you. You assume it gives you the truth because the rational mind is the golden calf that this culture worships, but this isn't true. Rationality squeezes out much that is rich and juicy and fascinating. And I think that's what Ted is doing. I think Ted is, is rationalizing and just being like, yeah, well, okay, that didn't work. I got to keep going. Like, oh, this thing happened with my dad. And I just got like, I can't look back and I just got to keep going. I don't have time to sit with Sharon and talk about my feelings. Like, I just have to keep moving forward has taken, like he is almost a shell of himself. Moving forward, but on a bungee cord and eventually that's got to snap back, right? Like you can't keep going like that. 
No, he needs to let that stuff out and he needs to start coming to terms with that stuff and just like, yeah, he's, I don't know. He needs to go to yoga mom's night with Roy. I'm a former yoga teacher and I love the part of the book and I'm that she talks about that rationality will, you know, keep you in that box because our intuition gets beaten out of us at such a young age. So as a breathwork yoga teacher and somebody who used to teach executives how to use their intuition in a business sense, it was such a, the book is such a great um, treatise on just how to live life and how to use that sense of intuition, not just in your writing, but it can benefit you in everything that you do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Ted's intuition keeps steering him towards uncovering this and, and letting it out and letting it show and his connections. And I think Rebecca's intuition is also guiding her towards Ted and people that will help her uncover yeah. it, get to where the gold really is. Yeah. One other thing I was thinking about when um, Marita, you were kind of talking about some of the backstory and stuff that you were reading these two different scripts. I was thinking about that Anthony Hopkins section um, when they're talking about how Anthony, yeah, like again, the, you know, the actor kind of believed in his heart, the stuff about Anthony Hopkins and, and made this villain so like believable. And it, it is a little bit interesting to me how both Ted and Nate are ignoring, both of them are ignoring things in their past and things in their lives, even today that they're just like, I'm not going to deal with this. You know, Nate isn't going to deal with his father he's going to keep projecting it to other things in his life. And Ted is, you know, not accepting the stuff with his father or trying to deal with it. And yet Ted is our, Ted is our hero and Nate is our, is our villain, you know, but they are both very much doing the same exact thing, but because Nate, you know, and again, I think it's that backstory, right? There's stuff that there's stuff about Ted that we haven't seen yet. And there's stuff about Nate that we haven't seen yet that are pointing those in those directions but when you put the two of them just like you know list them out next to each other eh, there's not a lot of difference between the two of them it isn't and i think that's the age-old story isn't it i mean like i, I mentioned it earlier but it's even more true in comparison with this is the villain in a story should never think they are the villain they should never think they are doing something for the sake of being bad they yeah. have to fully believe in their their status and although Nate isn't fully believing in hurting other people. He's fully believing the things that make him want to hurt other people. When Andrea initially said Nate mistakenly as her as her banter match in that podcast with Brett and Brendan, um, they talk about in the writers' room they pitched virtually every character as her match and discussed it. It wasn't like going to be Sam all along and just trying to, they said they, you know, ruled Ted out right away, ruled Beard out right away, which is kind of a shame because I would love to see how that played out. I would love to see them have to interact because they never really do, but just to be a fly on the wall in that room and think about how any other character, like, you know, Jamie Tart as her banter match, or <laughs> there's just, there's another dimension to textural chemistry (laughs) was it was a was it in clubhouse was it a recent podcast i don't even know something i was listening to something i was a part of something in the ted lasso universe this idea that sam is just like ted he's like a young version a young less damaged version of ted perhaps but um that they have enough characters oh I think it was the interview with Tori on peanut butter and biscuits Tori is the host of the their soulmates podcast 
And and so she was making her case for why they're soulmates. And that was a big part of it is that she saw these parallels between Sam and Ted. So anyway. Yeah, I can get that. I think we all know they're soulmates. It's whether they're going to fuck or not, right? <laughs> Thank soulmates, you, Michaela. Soulmates can, soulmates can yeah. be friends. Soulmates yeah. can be friends. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And both and or either, you know? Let's take a break for some comments from you, Greyhounds. They said, So far, I've really enjoyed this book. I never would have read a book about writing because I don't enjoy writing. But this book, oh my God, it's so heckin' funny, at times really poignant. I can really see the Ted Lasso lessons in it too. Remember, Greyhounds, you can join in the fun by commenting at our Twitter page, at Beards Book Club, or by emailing us at coachbeardsbookclub.com at gmail.com. So, Michaela, you have a game for us? Is that your plan? I do have a game for us. Okay, so for my section, I was really interested in the dialogue part because it's a thing that I've always been taught when regards to dialogue is that not only just show, don't tell, which would be like the example of what Beard said on the plane to Ted, like the first pass was like this whole, I followed you all the way, that was sort of like expositional dump, um, as opposed to, yeah, this is nuts, which gives us much more of a feel for Beard. So that's the example of how dialogue can really, another good example of it is when Keely is picking up a coffee in season two, episode two, when Jamie's sort of stalking her, following her around, it's like a, no, I don't even know if it's an eighth of a second, but Keely thanks the barista, who I've completely forgotten the name of, but she, you know what I mean? She knows the barista's name. She warmly smiles at her. She turns around. And in that small instance, we know quite a lot about Keely because we know she's almost famous and she could let that go to her head, like we've seen with a lot of, a lot of reality TV stars. And she hasn't. She learns the name of the barista's, um, you know, the barista's name, which tells us she's there a lot, but also she's caring, compassionate. Like that small, tiny thing showed us quite a lot about Keely, and that's what I've always been fascinated about. And I think I thought the best way to kind of have some fun with this is to do a literal version of whose line is it anyway, where I'm going to give you some lines that have been spoken on the show, and I'm not, I'm not going to try and be funny about it or like try and trick you or anything because the whole point of this is to see if we can tell by you know the way somebody sounds if we can tell with their character so yeah I'm going to I'm going to give you some lines and we're going to see who can tell me who spoke the lines and for bonus points what it shows us about the character all right I'm not going to run out I've got a shit ton so the first line I'm looking for who spoke it did you bring me here to get my leg broke Oh, that's Isaac, Isaac, and that's uh, in the scene where he goes and plays uh, at Roy's old place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right, yeah. I should have um, known she would start with Isaac. Of course, yeah. <laughs> Isaac! <laughs> Under Ted Lasso, Richmond are like a woman, completely lost. That's this George. A, well done! I was just about to give the, this is an obscure one, but George is George? so distinctive, right? He's the, such the, a the coach that gets fired and then ends up on soccer Saturday. Yeah. yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. pisses his pants. Liam and Noel, that guy. Liam and Noel, but not Liam Noel. hardly an oasis. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's very distinctive. So it's quite, it's easier with the ones that are 
more actual ish than And others. I actually love that they came right back with the misogyny on him, right? Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> okay, you don't, you don't, I guess, no, you do see it when he first, first meets Rebecca, but you might forget that about him uh, yeah. because you're so accustomed to that in like, at you least might I even, am dealing with coaches. And you might um, even forget who he is because he showed oh, up in that first episode and then you yeah, don't right. see him again until season yeah. two. Haha, I just walked into your neighbor's house. That's oh, really hard oh, to do oh, with oh, oh, I know that that's Zero. Yeah. That's Zero in the Christmas and, episode. Yeah. yeah. And I think the trouble with that line is it's not the way it's written that is distinctly Zero, it's the way it's delivered. You know, with that sort of like, just, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of excitement of Zero. I just, I, I remember that one because I've heard him talk about that line on when he's been on other podcasts. It was like, improv, wasn't it? Well, he was supposed, he tried a whole bunch of things and in the end they just went with like something basic. Like he was supposed to say a whole bunch of like random things. It and They're just like, yeah, yeah, we'll just go with the basic. You walked into someone's house. <laughs> okay, the next one. I feel like a little shit. I used our fun night out together to try and change your mind about something really? you don't want. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, really. should I not interrupt? I was <laughs> going oh, to say, no, no, no. <laughs> actually, just let other people take a turn. <laughs> I was yeah. trying to like rotate. <laughs> I think that's a good one as well because I just love the way she describes herself as a little shit. It's really yeah, very Keely, isn't it? Oh, a little yeah. shit. But there that's part of her polishing herself up to that to that dental draft. I'm just saying, like she, she even she is learning about herself. I'm I'm yeah. gonna bring it back. <laughs> oh, as as you should, as you should. But yeah, I think that's exactly it. It's like she's not even waiting till Roy's like you're being a dick to be like, oh, I'm sorry. But uh, okay, this one's probably easy. But hello, my beautiful coaches. May I join the drill? No, 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 no. Danny oh, Rojas, Rojas, Danny Rojas. Yeah, <laughs> for the first second there, I was like, what's happening? <laughs> and then, uh, <laughs> Is Marita having a stroke? Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, as good as you are at your job, I'm twice as good at mine. Dr. Sharon. Yes. Love her. Yes. Fucking love that line. I love that line. Such a good I love every, every line delivered by her. She is mm-hmm. so a top notch character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think as well, like that line could have been said in a million different ways and came across as her being a dick to Ted. But the way that it was written and delivered is very much, you no, know, I'm confident in my abilities. Oh, so yeah. it's just beautiful. absolute truth. And you have it to say so it. It's so true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and it's also a really amazing acknowledgement that black women have to prove themselves what three times as hard are you yeah 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 that's a great point like that with sarah niles's lines there was a lot of subtle things like that where i thought well at least and ashley nicole back being in the writer's room will have absolutely made a difference to that but and it was good to see and it even made a difference to the way she was written as the black female therapist which is a trope in in tv quite a bit but she is not just the one who's gonna like hold your hand and make everything better for you she's going to challenge you and 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 that in itself defies this the stereotype and the trope and i think like you said michaela that a lot that has to do with the writers in the room and their ability to accurately represent that without it becoming too tropey it's like you said about the line earlier, Marita, about the um, fucking tit fuck. Hold on. <laughs> Thoughts won't stay in my head. I don't remember no. that character. <laughs> Who's she? Who's that? 
wait, no, it's coming. It's about girls. It's like when you said the original script said something like, can you oh, get the girl? Yeah. yeah. It's just obviously that's been men that, that have wrote that. And it's taken a woman to come along and look at it and go, eh. And it's exactly the same with, like, say, with Sarah Niles' character, Dr. Sharon. It's like, we need that in the, re- the writer's room, especially for voice. Because oh, yeah. otherwise what you end up is with the stereo- stereotypical sort of caricatures of characters that just... Ugh. So... Yeah, the well, aforementioned uh, memoirs that I'm, re- I'm listening to, the number, you know, several African-American or Indian-American uh, books that I've been listening to, time and time again just the extra struggles that you know like and then things on top of each other I did um uh what's his name from Poe's um forgetting his name Billy Porter Billy Billy Porter like being gay and black and like oh my god so the next Next. one we have is wow we're watching the end of someone's career Jan Moss yeah he's not being rude he's just being Dutch Dutch. <laughs> so yeah i mean he's again very distinctive because no other character uh, even jamie because jamie will tell you you're a prick when you're not but he'll usually be you're a fucking prick that is so eloquent and so so like hard-hitting it's got to be young mass shut up um, young mass let me guess you've got a fever for the flavor of the little girl talk don't you that's, that's Ted. Ted. I want to hear you do it in an American accent, though, Michaela. Oh, God, which kind? Well, like the Kansas one. Oh, fuck, no, I'd make a tit of that. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> I was like, Remember ready we- to just go in. I was like, nope, nope. Remember, we need to do that thing, Michaela, the, um, the words the Scottish people can't say. <laughs> yeah. Because I sent, I was actually going to mention that earlier. I sent Andrea TikToks because she put a TikTok on, and I seen that as an open invitation to send her all my favorite TikToks, which is what will happen if you do that. I, I was re-listening to the audio that just came out today for the Ender's Game episode, and you were trying to say parallel. I fucking cannot say that word. I put a like a whole like, like parallel, minute and a half pa- video. Parallel, parallel, parallel. And then what's really annoying is two minutes later, when I wasn't thinking about it, only fucking. Started- it perfectly mm-hmm. perfectly <laughs> so next one so your way of alleviating my embarrassment is to tell me how many people have seen me look like a knob Roy, Roy. Rebecca oh no Roy, Roy you're right yeah that's one of my favorites as well uh oh look on the bright side we're still undefeated is that, that was Rebecca was Higgins oh. Rebecca Oh, yeah, fun. Andrea got it. But season season two, Rebecca, I did split the Rebecca lines up into season one and season two because clearly our intentions are different. And there's some other characters like that, but mostly Rebecca. Um, but I didn't make any mistakes. Only you played poorly. Jan Mas. She's just so distinct. There's no mistaking him for any other character. Totally. I, yeah, I, I think my favorite line of his is that wasn't true in the Helter Skelter murders. Though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody just turn around like, Jesus, Jan Mas, Jesus. Oh, coach, if it's okay with you, some of us like to take long baths at home. That's Sam. My baby. I knew Beck should get that. I knew I could, yeah. I knew it. And I love that he asked Ted for permission for a thing he's doing as a grown ass man in his own house. (laughs) Bonus points for Marita because that is exactly what that has shown us. Is that he's so considerate. He's asking about things he doesn't have to be considerate about, which is uh, very Sam. 
He's going to use all the hot water. Call him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, good save. Uh, that is. Is that right? No, hang on. I know this. It's going to take me five minutes to get it, but I absolutely know it. <laughs> Beard. Yes. Beard. It's when Ted um, calls. Lady. It's the lady football thing. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah. That is on divorce. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. Good one, Chris. <laughs> okay. No judgment, but are you back with that twat? Rebecca. 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 Oh, it is Rebecca. Yeah. But it's about Keely and Jamie. That's correct. Yeah. That's right. It's during his beer bee press conference. It's my beer. I love it. I don't even think it's it's just season one, Rebecca, because that way of you know claiming no judgment and then being extremely judgmental. (laughs) (laughs) But for her own sake. Because, you know, if friends going out with a Jamie Tart, judge them. (laughs) They deserve it. A season one Jamie Tart, I should say. Because they're very different. They're very different. I hate that poxy wanker. Baz? Baz, yes. Close, it's Jeremy. Jeremy. But I would give you that because, you know, if you just said Jeremy Jeremy or Jeremy, Baz and Jeremy are like, yeah, maybe we should send me in pub labs. Pub labs. Doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> but not Paul. Yeah, well, Paul's least. different. Yeah. Paul is different. Yeah. That fella looked like a kitty cat when he gets spooked by a cucumber. I didn't put too many of Ted's in because no other character sounds like him or speaks like him at all. And the only time I could have done it was putting Scoot Your Boot in and putting it as Roy, which I thought would have been quite cruel. Because the whole point is that he's doing that to emulate Ted a little bit, but there isn't there's no way that you could put a Ted line in here and it not be obvious it was Ted to me anyway. Any coffee thing, as long as I can't taste a hint of coffee. That's Ted. Keely. No, it's Ted. And that's and why it, it's the peppermint latte. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Which is hilarious. This. It's awesome. Which is hilarious that he hates tea. I know. But he also hates coffee. He doesn't actually like coffee. He doesn't say as long as it doesn't taste like coffee. Why would you want coffee if it doesn't taste like coffee? Needs he needs to like get a peppermint tea. A nice peppermint tea and he'd be happy as Larry from Jane's Pot. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a big word. Ask one of your daughters what it means. Rebecca. Rebecca. Yeah, that's George. <laughs> That's and a the nice word, one. and the word was misogyny. misogyny. Yes, and the last one. Oh, this is the fellow with the big Mickey Mouse hands by the neck. That's Ted. Ted. That's in the it's press Ted conference again. when they're asking him what a goalie is. Yes. Yeah. So I, I wonder if anybody playing along at home would see the sort of distinctions. I think some of the time I'm working a lot from memory with these lines because I've watched it so many times that it's hard to know if I would recognize the character on the line, but I'm sure I would. I think so. it ties nicely with the Lamont book because there is a lot of talk about creating your characters and making them identifiable. If if you flushed out your character development in advance, then when they speak, you just know who they are and, yeah. and it right. fits really well. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a, a sort of halfway between voice and what they say as well, because sometimes it isn't necessarily even about the voice. The line could belong to 
a couple of characters, but it's what they're seeing, like Jan Mars, that clearly identifies them as, as the character they are. And I think that's one thing that, one thing, I think that's a thing that Ted Lasso has done fantastically well, is really give a shit about its dialogue, especially in the, the, the surroundings of an, an industry with such a diversity in its um, players and coaches and all that sort of thing. I would hate to have seen that kind of done a bit half-hazardly. So, um, yeah, love it. Um, I just thought it's a great, it's a great tome on how to live life. And I think Ted Lasso is as well. And I think being based on what you're, you know, writing about what, what you know, what you're passionate about and not imposing your moral compass on the work, but just having that inform you. He says it in the book is so well done by Ted Lasso. You know, they're not, they're showing us right from wrong. They're showing us, they're normalizing the, the more human parts of our personalities. And she says to do that. So I think that they, they must, they must have used it as some sort of a guide, oh, some, yeah. whether or not they knew. I think they Bill did. recommends it to everyone who does a show with. That's my theory on it, is that when Bill signs yeah. them up, they're like, read this, because it seems to- Bill Lawrence. Bill, Bill Lawrence, Lawrence, sorry. Yeah, Bill Lawrence, the, the, the guy they went to when they, they had the show who helped them get it off the ground. Yeah, is, yeah. Like a lot of the stuff I was reading in that, sort of emulated the stuff that I read about him as well so it wouldn't surprise me and like I, like Andrea says as well I definitely think they were like right read this book that's your homework before we start it feels like that yeah mm -hmm. yeah oh, fun. awesome another so, great episode I know and it was so fun to have a guest Chrisanne thank you so much yeah. for joining us thank you thank for you so letting me play I had a blast I could hang out and Good. chat with you ladies all day every day and twice on Sunday <laughs> I was yeah, going to say something and do it once a week but I just want to say a big thank you to Chrisanne for coming on and I want to reiterate that please go to Ted Lasso's live Twitter and look for Chrisanne's love letter to Beard After Hours amazing and I really thank you so much for coming on and spending this time with us thank I had so much fun. fun thank you yeah you just Yours. slotted right in it's like you've always been here <laughs> Um, so thank you everyone for your amazing Ted Lasso takes. Um, what have we got coming up next? Does somebody know? We have About a Boy by Nick Hornsby. Excellent. Right. Very I'm looking exciting. forward to this one. Yeah. So get your copies now. Start reading. Start listening. Start engaging with the text in whatever way you best wish to engage with it. And we will see you in a few weeks for that. Yeah. We'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Follow us on Twitter at Beards Book Club or send an email to us at coachbeardsbookclub at gmail.com. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave a five-star review. If you prefer the video version, please check out our YouTube channel, Coach Beards Book Club, now. Let's show Chrisanne some big book club love. You can follow Chrisanne at Chrisanne underscore Morgan on Twitter or Chrisanne on Instagram. Thank you so much for your comments. Oops, in it, they were fantastic. Remember, you can join in the fun too, even after the episode. Come have a chat on Twitter at Beards Book Club. <laughs>